Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. The readings are going to be on the screen, but also if you are somebody who likes things in physical copy and you have a red Bible near you, it's The first reading is Isaiah 52, and it starts on page 595 of the Red Pew Bibles. Awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean shall enter you no more. Shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter Zion. For thus says the Lord, You were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, Long ago my people went down into Egypt to reside there as aliens. The Assyrian too has oppressed them without cause. Now therefore, what am I doing here, says the Lord, seeing that my people have been uh, taken away without cause. Their rulers howl, says the Lord, and they continually all day long, uh, and and continually all day long, my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speaks. Here uh, Here am I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who announces peace, who brings good news, who announces salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, you sentinels lift up your voices. Together they sing for joy, for in plain sight they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, your ruins of Jerusalem, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, get out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Get out from the midst of it. Purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rearguard. See, my servant shall prosper. He shall be exalted and lifted up, and shall be very high. Just as there were many who were astonished at him, so marred was his appearance beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of mortals, He shall startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not had not been told them, they shall see, and that which they had not heard, they shall contemplate. Now the second reading comes from Romans chapter 15, starting at verse 14. And if you're reading along in the Red Pew Bibles, as I pick that up, um, it is on page 924. So page 924, if you're in a physical Bible, that's on the views. I myself feel confident about you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. 
Nevertheless, on some points I have written you, you rather boldly, by the way, uh, you, you written to you rather boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to boast of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to win obedience from the Gentiles by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all around Iconium that the, I have fully proclaimed the good news of God, of Christ. That thus I make my, myself ambitious to proclaim the good news, not where Christ has already been named, so that I do not build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have not been told of him shall see, and those who have never heard of him shall understand. This is the reason that I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, I desire, as I have for many years, to come to you when I go to Spain. For I do not hope to see you on my journey and be sent on, uh, for I do hope to see you on my journey and be sent on by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a little while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem in a ministry to the saints from Macedonia and Achaia, who have been pleased to share their resources with the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. They were pleased to do this, and indeed they owe to them, they owe it to them. For, for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material things. So when I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will set out by way of you to Spain. And I will know it, that I have come to you. I will see that, I, and I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessings of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in earnest prayer to God on my behalf, that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my ministry to Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed by your, in your company. The God of peace be with all of you. Amen. This is the word of God. Uh, Christianity is and always has been a missionary faith. It started in Jerusalem in the days of Jesus. It spread to the very ends of the earth. And it's a, a faith that has never been for one place and one time doesn't belong to any one culture, any one geographic region, any era or epoch of history. Uh, Christianity, the message of Jesus, his good news of his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins is for everyone everywhere throughout the ages, for all time. And if you've been around churches long enough, you'll know that we all, each one of us, has a part to play in that mission. That we all have as part of our life as followers of Jesus, uh, the opportunity, the, the, the beautiful privilege uh, to be able to speak of what Jesus has done for us to share our faith with those around us. So I want to ask you a question about that. Uh, what kind of level of confidence are you feeling about sharing your faith with people around you, with your friends, with your neighbours, with your family and your colleagues? How confident are you at sharing your faith? 
One way to get at that is uh, perhaps to ask, uh, when you have those moments where you go, oh, this is a good moment, this would be a great moment to talk about Jesus, what do you do in that moment? Uh, are you, as uh, some of us are, not speaking from experience at all, of course, uh, a little bit awkward? You're just like, ah, oh, that would be good to talk about. Maybe a little weird. Oh, the moment's passed. What a shame. Maybe you're not confident, actually, that you know enough. You go, I don't know what I would say if there are any kind of follow-up questions or anything. How do, how do I talk about this? I don't, just, I don't feel confident to do that. Uh, perhaps you're a little bit worried, actually, that it feels a little bit like telling other people that they're wrong and you're right and they should just think what you think and that can be a little bit awkward, a little bit hard to take as well, a bit too conflicty in some ways. How confident are you at sharing your faith? Here in this passage from uh, Romans, Paul begins with uh, a vote of confidence, a resounding vote of confidence in the Roman Christians. Read with me, verse 14. He writes, I myself feel confident about you, my brothers and sisters. And he's confident about a particular thing about them. He says, I I myself feel confident about you, brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. What is it that Paul's confident about for the Romans? He's confident that they have been filled. Now, if you remember where we left off last week, that makes a lot of sense for Paul to be talking about this here. The end of the last passage we looked at last week, the the previous verse, had that beautiful prayer that Paul gives for God's people. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the life there that God holds out to anyone who trusts in Jesus in the gospel, to abound in hope. And that word, abound, could just as well be translated as overflow. God fills you with joy and peace so that you overflow in hope, so full that it spills out around the edges. The God of hope can fill you so full that you overflow with joy and peace and faith and hope and love. And you see, because Paul is confident that that's true for the Roman church, what he does next in the passage before us tonight is to invite them to share with him in the, me- the, the message and mission of God. Paul says, you guys are awesome. Everyone knows, he said this right back in chapter 1, everyone's heard of your faith in Rome. Everyone knows how good you guys are going, how great things are going for the gospel there. Everyone knows you're filled to overflowing with joy and peace and faith and hope in God. And because of his confidence that that is true, he enrolls them in the, in the mission of God. He recruits them to be part of that work together with him in the world. Uh, The way that he does that tells us something very significant about mission. Uh, This is what what it tells us, and this is really what the rest of the sermon's about. Here's the headline for you. Mission is nothing less than the overflow of joy and peace and faith and love and hope that God gives us in Jesus. Mission is nothing less than the overflow of those things. And if we know that, if we understand that, then actually we can have the same kind of confidence that Paul has has uh, of the Romans in our own part in that mission as well. Christian mission, evangelism, speaking to our friends and neighbours and families and colleagues about how good Jesus is, inviting them to follow him as well, supporting God's mission outside our church in various ways too. That mission is nothing less than the overflow of a life transformed by the gospel of grace. And that's what you need to know in order to be confident in your own part in God's mission, as Paul is about the Romans. So in this passage, we're going to see three things about what that looks like, three things about mission, about what it is. Uh, They'll be up on the screen for you. Firstly, what motivates mission? Secondly, the goal of mission. And thirdly, the shape of mission. They're going to be our headings this evening, and I've, I've spoiled the punchlines for you already. They're up there on the screen. You can see the answers to the implied questions there. Let's begin right there at the beginning, though, the motivation for mission. 
Uh, right near the beginning of this passage, uh, Paul gives us a somewhat surprising description of himself and his mission and how con- he conceives of his own part in that mission. He tells the Roman Christians that his confidence in them is filled to overflowing believers, and he continues, verse 15, Nevertheless, on some points I've written to you rather boldly. If you've read Paul uh, much before, you might be thinking to yourself at this point, well, why break the habit of a lifetime, Paul? Boldness is your MO. Anyway, that's beside the point. I've written to you rather boldly, he says, by way of reminder. Because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in, wait for it, in the priestly service of the gospel of God. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Priestly service, offerings, it's temple language, temple sacrifice language picked up from the Old Testament. That should strike us as a bit weird, to be honest. Hasn't Paul just been saying in the last few chapters that actually some of that Old Testament law stuff, the food laws, the holy days, they're not binding for Christians anymore? Follow them if you want to, but you don't have to to be a follower of Jesus? And don't we know from the rest of the, the New Testament that, we don't, uh, that we've left behind the temple system with all of its sacrifices? But now here we have Paul describing his own mission as priestly service. It's the, the word that's used to refer to what priests do in offering sacrifices to God in the temple. And he even speaks of his Gentile converts as, as an offering, as a sacrifice made to God. What's the deal? Why is he using this language? What does he mean by it? Uh, the thing that you've got to know about the uh, Old Testament sacrifices to make a bit of sense of this is that there are two basic kinds of offerings that are made in the temple. Firstly, there's sin offerings that are designed to turn away the wrath of God. And then on the other hand, there are thanksgiving offerings designed to express gratitude to God for his goodness and mercy. Now, the New Testament is very, very clear. Jesus has become the one true and effective sin offering. So, for example, in the letter to the Hebrews, we read, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And that means that whatever kind of sacrifice Paul's talking about here, it can't be that first kind. It can't be the sin offering that's done in Jesus. What he's talking about is a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Uh, In fact, he's already used this language uh, once back at the beginning of chapter 12, uh, the kind of beginning of this whole last section of Romans that we've been working through in this series. Back at the start of chapter 12, he writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, given everything that God has done for you in his mercy, in his grace, in Jesus, then you must give your whole self to him fully as well. Not as a dead sacrifice, like in the Old Testament law, but as a living sacrifice, your whole life given over to him. Joy in the Lord, you see, overflows in sacrifice, in giving ourselves body and soul to serve God in everything. Uh, To refer to Hebrews again, uh, this dynamic is referred to there as our sacrifice of praise. And here in Romans, what Paul's showing us is that mission is part of that sacrifice. Mission is part of our praise, part of our response of joyful thankfulness to God's mercies to us in Jesus. Uh, That actually tells us that kind of, you know, the motivation of mission is praise tells us something really important about mission, about evangelism, about what it really is. It tells us that first and foremost, mission is an overflow of thankful praise to God. 
How is mission an overflow of, of praise? Uh, C.S. Lewis is helpful here. C.S. Lewis is always helpful here, isn't he? C.S. Lewis is helpful here. Uh, he's writing about, uh, in this uh, section I'm about to read you, uh, he's writing about praise in a series of reflections on the Psalms. He's not actually talking about mission specifically, but I think he actually gets at the same dynamic as what you see going on here in Romans. Uh, I didn't manage to get it on the screen for you, so you'll have to listen closely as I read. I promise not to do my best old-school British C.S. Lewis accent for you. I'll just read it in my normal voice, don't worry. Listen up, here's what C.S. Lewis says about praise. All enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. Unless, and sometimes even if, shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers, their favourite poet. Walkers praising the, con- the countryside. Players praising their favourite game. Praise of weather, wine, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. All enjoyment, he says, spontaneously overflows into praise. Uh, But Lewis notes, uh, really insightfully, that, that that praise doesn't actually end there. It doesn't end with us in our expression of it. He continues, just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. And so people will say, isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that's magnificent? And so he concludes, the psalmist, in telling everyone to praise God, is doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. All enjoyment spontaneously leads to praise, and we naturally invite others to join us in praising those things that we value. That's what Paul's priestly language is getting at here. We offer ourselves to God as living sacrifices, a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. And naturally, as we're filled with joy and overflow with praise, we'll invite others into that as well, to join us in that praise of the true and living God. So they too might become living sacrifices, praising God with their lives. I think this is actually really important for us to understand this this dynamic between praise and mission, that actually joy overflowing in a sacrifice of praise, that that's the heart of what mission is. Uh, Mission, you see, at its heart, isn't warning people that they're on the wrong path, though sometimes, of course, we must do that. Mission, at its heart, isn't having the right answers and arguments, though that can be helpful sometimes as well. Mission at its heart isn't convincing people that Christianity offers the best way to live, though, of course, we believe that it does. No, mission at its very heart is the unstoppable overflow of joyful praise that invites others to join in. Mission is what happens when you're so filled up with joy and peace and faith and hope and love from God that you can't help overflowing in praise for the Lord Jesus, talking about him, explaining what it is that he does in your life. It's for exactly that reason that, that I think, this, is, this isn't something I've drawn specifically from the scriptures here, this is just me talking, but I think it works this way. I think the best kind of evangelism often isn't a big conference uh, with an altar call perhaps after an evangelistic talk. I think the best kind of evangelism uh, isn't a sermon, though sermons are good too, so keep listening. I think the best kind of evangelism uh, is, is rarely actually some kind of clever argument that destroys an atheist's objection to the faith, as useful as that can be. No, the best kind of evangelism is often the way that ordinary Christians speak about God's work in their lives, the way they express their joy in him. It's for that reason that um, the more and more the the 
older I've gotten, I guess, and the more I've had conversations with people about why it is that I follow Jesus, why I'm a Christian, the most response to the, the question, that question, why are you a Christian? What does that mean for you? It isn't anymore because Christianity has the best arguments or because I'm convinced that the Gospels are historically accurate or because it makes sense of my life. All of those things are true. More and more, though, when people ask me why I'm a Christian, my standard response has become because Jesus is wonderful and he's been very, very kind to me. That's what it's all about. Now, you guys probably get asked that question more than I do because people find out that I work for a church, that I'm a minister, and they go, ah, cool, how's the weather? You guys get to talk much more often probably about why it is that you follow the Lord Jesus. And I wonder what your answer would be. What, what is it really out of the heart of it? Why is it that you follow Jesus? Why is it that you keep walking with him? For me, it's because the more I know of Jesus, he's just wonderful and he's so kind to me in so many ways. What have we learned here so far? We've learned that the motivation for mission is that joy that overflows in a sacrifice of praise, a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to the God of mercy and grace. But what's the goal of that mission? What's the, the point and purpose of it, the energy for it? Where's it all going? Point two. Uh, what do we hope that our mission, uh, our outreach programs together as a church, as well as our own personal evangelism in our own lives uh, with those uh, we know and love, what do we hope that our mission will actually result in? What's the goal? Uh, the staff team here at Christchurch Inner West uh, keep very detailed records of how many people turn up at our services each week. Andrew's standing at the back right now, actually, he's been doing a head count just to make sure that we know how many people were here. Andrew always gets more than me. Anyway, I don't know what that's about. We keep detailed records of attendance on Sundays, right? Uh, is that because the goal of our mission uh, as a church is to just get more bums on seats? Is that the goal? Is that what we're in, what, what, what we're in this for? No, of course not. It's much more than that. Uh, do we want more and more people to be part of our church, to join us in worship in all kinds of ways, including together on Sundays? Of course we do. Absolutely we want that. But you see, it's not just about walking through the door. That's not enough. That's not the goal of the whole thing. Notice how Paul describes the goal of mission, verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to boast of my work for God. For I won't venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. For what purpose? To win obedience from the Gentiles. Now, what's the goal of Paul's mission? Obedience. Obedience uh, is actually uh, what this whole letter is about in one sense. Paul begins with obedience right back uh, in chapter 1, verse 5. He says, We've received grace and apostleship for what purpose? To bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. And it's where Paul ends his letter too in the passage we're going to look at as Louisa opens up the last uh, bit of Romans for us next week in chapter 16. There he writes about bringing about the obedience of faith in the very conclusion to the letter. Uh, from one angle, the whole of this grand statement of faith, the gospel in the letter to the Romans, is the obedience of faith. And the point is, you see, that conversion isn't the end of the story. Hearing and believing the gospel is only the beginning. The goal is for the gospel to change and transform someone's whole life from the heart outwards. Uh, when Jesus says uh, in, the, in the Gospels, repent and believe the gospel, he's inviting us not just to take one moment in our lives to say, oh no, I think something different about Jesus now. He's inviting us to start out on a whole new journey. Uh, one scholar translates that uh, Greek word for repentance as change your purpose. I love that. It's as though Jesus is saying, change your purpose when you believe the gospel. Turn your whole life around so that it's more and more pointing toward God and his good things, so that it more and more is about Jesus. 
That's what it means for the goal to be obedience. But note how carefully Paul, uh, how careful Paul is as he speaks about obedience here. Uh, it's the obedience you see of faith, or perhaps uh, even better, the obedience that comes from faith, that results from faith. The direction there is very important. Obedience doesn't lead to faith. We're not saved by what we do. Instead, faith leads to obedience. Paul's not suggesting that obeying God leads to salvation. It's the other way around. Obeying God's will and God's ways is, you see, a response to his mercy and grace, part of our thanksgiving thanksgiving offering, our sacrifice of praise. And because God's mercy and grace come before obedience, our obedience, you see, also isn't forced. It's a willing obedience, a joyful and free submission to God and his ways. Uh, The word faith, of course, at its root really just means trust. It's about trust. That's what Jesus asks when he says, have faith in me. He says, trust me. Will you trust me with your life? And it's that kind of trusting faith in God that produces obedience. Trust that God is good and that, he, and that he wants and knows what's best for you and that he wants good for you. Now, that's why when you're finding it hard to obey God, it's not just you. All of us find it hard to obey God in different ways. When you're finding it hard to obey God and you, just, you can't see how it is that this is good, how this is good, it feels so hard, it feels so not what you want to do, it doesn't feel good, The question to ask again and again isn't necessarily, how is this good? Convince me that this is good. The question to ask again and again is, is God trustworthy? Does Jesus want what's good for me? That's actually the question in the background throughout most of the second half of Romans. And Paul keeps saying again and again and again, yes, God is faithful. God is true. God is trustworthy. This God who makes promises that seem ludicrous from a human perspective, he's been true to those promises in Jesus. And therefore, we can trust him with our lives. And as you do that, more and more, your life will more and more conform, not to this age, but to the joy and peace and love and hope that expresses itself in living to please God. Where is it that you're finding it hard to obey God at the moment, where actually this this gospel work of obedience, the obedience that comes from faith, hasn't worked itself out in your life yet? How is it that you might actually be wondering too much about actually what that looks like for your life, why it's good for you? Stop and ask that question. Is God trustworthy? Is he good? Does Jesus want what's best for you? So, so far we've seen that the motivation for mission is joy that overflows in sacrifice, a sacrifice of praise. The goal of mission is faith that overflows in obedience. Uh, Lastly, what shape does this mission take? This passage actually tells us uh, two things about the shape of mission, or rather gives us two angles on kind of what God's mission looks like. Firstly, it tells us what it's like for Paul, his part in the mission, and then it tells us about us and our part in that mission as well. Firstly, Paul's part in that mission. Uh, Paul gives uh, the Romans here this uh, really um, fascinating overview of his missionary work, verse 19. He says, From Jerusalem and as far around as Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the good news of Christ. Uh, Here's a map for you on the screen put this map up here, and um, that can just stay up there now on the screen. I'll, keep, I'll refer to this a few more times. Uh, this is trying to help us uh, actually see what it is that Paul's talking about here. You can see point A on the map, kind of right in the middle there, uh, is the city of Corinth, where Paul's letters to the Corinthians got sent, and where Paul almost certainly is when he wrote this letter to the Romans. Uh, point B is uh, Rome, where this is written to, where Paul's hoping to get to in due course. Uh, Point C, down on the bottom right of the map, uh, is uh, Jerusalem, where all of this began, with Jesus walking around, giving himself for us, where uh, Paul's mission kind of began 
uh, in many ways as well. And from Jerusalem, you'll see a red uh, arrow kind of curving all the way up around to Illyricum, kind of near where modern-day Albania is. That's Paul's mission field, he's saying, kind of within that, that red arrow there. Inside that red line is where Paul has been on mission uh, by the time he gets around to writing this letter. And in the next verse, he tells us something about what it is that he's done on mission in that zone. Verse 20. I make it my ambition to proclaim the good news, not where Christ has already been named. Uh, Paul's mission strategy, you see, is to work his way uh, around the, the, north, the northern coast of the Mediterranean Sea, focusing especially on places where there aren't any Christians, where no one's ever heard about Jesus before, and what he does is to establish churches there, to plant churches. Now, that's the reason, Paul says in verse 22, that he, the great apostle to the Gentiles, hasn't yet made it to Rome, the capital of the Gentile world. You'd think he'd want to go there, and he does. But the reason that he hasn't already been is that there's already a Christian church there, probably planted actually by the apostle Peter. So the shape of Paul's mission, he tells us here, is a, a church planting movement focused on, if you like, unreached people groups, on areas where there aren't any Christians yet. And so Paul tells the Romans about his plan to get to the next unreached part of the Gentile world, verse 23. But now with no further place for me in these regions, I desire as I have for many years to come to you when I go to Spain. He's going to complete that kind of arc across the top of the Mediterranean there and go all the way over to Spain, which is point, point D on the far left there on the map. With a stopover in Rome on the way, he says. Uh, but, you know, he kind of implies there's no point staying very long. There's already a church there in Rome. He wants to get on the way to Spain. That's where he really wants to go. Now, I'll slow it down for a moment there and just kind of ask a really burning question about what it is that Paul's just said about his own mission. He says, from Jerusalem and as far around as Illyricum, I've fully proclaimed the good news. He says then, verse 23, there's no further place for me here in these regions. Uh, he's essentially saying, my job's done here. I need to go somewhere else. There's no work left for me in this place. Now, consider that Paul is writing this to a group of house churches in Rome that's estimated to probably have been no bigger than about 200 people at the time of his writing in, in a city, a huge city for ancient times, of about a million people in Paul's day. Think of it like this. There'll be more people, there have been more people at Christ Church Inner West's five services today than there were Christians in the whole city of Rome when Paul was writing this letter let alone the fact that Christians were still a small minority in Jerusalem and indeed everywhere between there and Illyricum. How can Paul say, effectively, job done, time to move on, I fully proclaimed the gospel? Well, the answer to that question, you see, is where you and I come in. Paul's strategy is this, to plant churches in the major cities and once they're established there, to move on and plant another in a city where there isn't any church yet, and to leave the church that he's established in those cities with the job of taking the gospel to the surrounding towns and villages, you see. His particular part as the apostle to the Gentiles appointed by Jesus himself to that role is to plant base churches in the major centres from which those churches then can reach out into the surrounding communities. You see that a bunch of times in the New Testament, actually. It happens in Acts chapter 14, where we read about Paul and Barnabas evangelising the cities of Derb and Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, where they, quote, appointed elders in each church. You see it again in Paul's letter to his uh, ministry colleague Titus, uh, to whom he writes, I left you behind in Crete, the you know, island there in the middle-ish south of Corinth, or, or the further one across. Which one's Crete? Anyway, I forget now. All good, the bigger one. All good. What are the islands there? Anyway, to Titus, he says, I left you behind in Crete for this reason, so that you should put in order what remained to be done 
and should appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Uh, Paul's mission strategy was to plant churches in unreached cities and then to say to those churches, over to you. Keep going. Go and tell everyone around this city about Jesus. Go and plant other house churches, other communities, plant more congregations in the areas around you. And that's the job we have, right? Us as a local church together. That's our part in the mission, to saturate Asheville and the whole of the inner west with the gospel by inviting those around us to join with us in praise and obedience, creating more and more communities of God's people. That's what we're on about here at Christ Church Inner West. Uh, and so, you know, from the 10 a.m. congregation here at Asheville over the years, there's been planted an evening congregation here in Asheville, and then from those congregations, congregations in the evening in Five Dock, in the morning in Haberfield, a Korean-speaking congregation here at Asheville as well, and we hope and pray in the years to come more and more congregations. This is our version of that mission that Paul was doing around the Mediterranean in the first century. We're saturating the inner west with living sacrifices of praise. Still just following in the footsteps, actually, of the Apostle to the Gentiles all those years ago. But we know, of course, that the goal uh, isn't uh, just bums on seats, is it? It's about transformed lives in the gospel, joy overflowing in sacrifice and praise, faith overflowing in obedience. And that goal, the fact that the goal is more than just mere conversion, that goal actually gives shape to our mission as well. So to draw toward an end uh, this evening, I want to make some observations about how it is that we go about that mission. Uh, Firstly, notice that the uh, mission involves both proclamation and acts of service. Paul says in uh, verse uh, 18, he says that I've done all this by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. Uh, The gospel of grace, and really this is what the last two chapters of Romans have been all about, the gospel of grace must be lived out in lives of grace. And so our mission here in the inner west has to involve both proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Lord and also bearing witness to his loving lordship in acts of service. Uh, Paul's mission, he says, was also marked by the power of signs and wonders, uh, probably referring particularly to uh, acts of miraculous healing, uh, which seemed to have been actually a a specific mark for the uh, the ministry of the apostles. They were always doing kind of healings and that kind of thing. We don't see there's much in our context anymore. doesn't mean God can't do it, but had a particular um, function and purpose, I think, in the ministry of the apostles particularly. But there's actually an even more remarkable and wondrous sign than miraculous healings, uh, a more remarkable sign of the power of the Spirit uh, that characterises our mission here today. And that's the thing, again, that Paul's been talking about these last few chapters, the fact that this community here of really diverse people in all kinds of ways who disagree about all kinds of things, who have different ideas about exactly the details of how to go about following Jesus, that we worship God together in one voice. The unity of the people of God, you see, is a gift of the Spirit, a gift that Paul has spent most of these last two chapters defending and explaining. The miracle is that the church of God engaged in proclamation and loving service to one another and to the world, that's the power of the Spirit of God at work in the world and the sign to the world around us that God really is doing something here. Uh, That's actually why Paul is so determined to uh, visit Jerusalem. You notice that his travel plans actually aren't going straight to Rome and Spain. He's going to go to Jerusalem first. And what he wants to do is to give the Jewish Christians there the gifts that he's collected from the Gentile Christians in Corinth and Macedonia and Achaia. And so what he's going to do, look at it again on the map, is before he goes west to Rome and to Spain from Corinth, he says, I really want to go to Spain. I'm going to come to you on the way, but first I'm going to go in exactly the opposite direction, back east again to Jerusalem. Why is he so determined to do this? 
It's because the Gentile Christians serving the Jewish Christians in this way is a sign that they considered them to be family in the Lord. And for the Jewish Christians to humbly receive those gifts would be an acknowledgement from them that the Gentile Christians too were members of the family of God, the household of faith. It was the deed, you see, that confirmed the word. God was inviting the whole of the human race, Jew and Gentile together, into praising him. Paul goes, we have to have that. We have to make sure that that's happening. We have to make sure that that is seen in our life together in order to provide a base for our mission in the world. Uh, That's the first uh, observation about how it is that we give shape to this mission. Uh, The second and third are going to be much briefer, I promise you. Uh, The second is that we have a role to play in this mission, not only here in our local church, actually, but a role beyond that, a role that you might call partnership. Uh, Paul tells the Romans that he wants uh, to visit them on his way to Spain, but it's more than just kind of like stopping in for a cup of tea on the way to catch up. He has something he actually wants from them as well. Verse 24. I do hope to see you on my journey and to be sent on by you. Uh, Romans, you see, is uh, in part a fundraising letter. This great glorious statement of the gospel through whom many people throughout history have been converted to the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, this high point of the New Testament in so many ways, it's a letter asking people for money. To be sent on by the Roman church, according to some other documents we've got from the, the early church times, it likely meant uh, providing financial assistance, some provisions for the journey, and quite possibly also an escort at least part of the way to Spain. Paul's saying, help me on my way in this mission. You do your part there in Rome and you help me go and do my part over there in Spain. God calls us to this kind of partnership as well, of course, to give generously to his mission in other parts of the world. That's uh, what we do with our gospel partners who we pray for, who we hear about in our services. We partner with them by resourcing them for mission in other places that we can't go and do mission in. Uh, But of course, we don't just partner financially with them. uh, And here's the third and, and final observation. We partner with them in prayer too. Uh, Verse 30, uh, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in earnest prayer to God on my behalf. Join me in prayer, he says, and he specifically requests prayer for protection from those who are hostile to his message, to the gospel, and for success in his work with the saints as well, as he seeks to continue to live out that unity of, uh, of the people of God. And if we're serious about partnering in mission, and for that matter, about our own mission here in Asheville and the Inner West, both together as a church and each on our own in our own places, then we're going to make it a priority, actually, to be praying for God's mission, to pray for our gospel partners, to pray for the ministries of Christchurch Inner West, to pray for uh, the growth of our own congregation, and to pray for one another in our witness to friends and to family, to neighbours and to colleagues, as we seek to take those opportunities to talk about why actually Jesus means so much to us, what it looks like for us to follow him. Friends, what's it going to look like for for us to take our part up in this, in this mission, this same mission that actually we join in the Apostle Paul in, even on the other side of the world 2,000 years later? What does it look like for us to do this here in the inner West? What's our local variation, if you like, of Paul's strategy, our particular version of the how in the time and place where God has put us? Well, that's actually what our vision group that I mentioned earlier on has been meeting to discuss. That's what what we'll be presenting next week at at our vision meeting after the service. What do we think it looks like for us to do that here in the inner West in the next 10 years? That's an important thing, and I really do hope that that as many of you as possible will be there to to discuss that and hear about that that with us. But, of course, there's one thing that matters far more than any plan we might make, one thing that forms the basis and gives life and power to the whole of that mission, is that it's always and only a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. That's the heart that it comes from. 
You see, we'll never see success in our efforts in mission unless our offerings are the overflow of hearts filled with joy and peace and faith and love and hope that comes from God. We take up our part in God's great mission in response to his mission to us in the Lord Jesus. A thanksgiving offering made possible by the once-for-all sin offering of the Lord Jesus on the cross. The great missionary who left his father's side and came into a strange place with people who didn't know him to make himself known. The one who in overflowing love gave his own body and blood to bring us into overflowing life lived in the power of the Spirit. If you want to be confident in your part in mission, that's what you need to know. The one who's come to you first. And so we offer ourselves to him as living sacrifices with his praise always overflowing from our hearts, on our lips and in our lives. And we pray all glory and honour be his now and forevermore. And if even just one voice is missing from singing his praises, then we know that his praises are too few. And so we get about this business of sharing him as often as we can, together as a church, each in our own spheres, confident that he will keep filling us to overflowing with his love and grace in the gospel. Let's pray that he keep doing that work in us for his glory. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we're so excited about what it is that you give to us to do in the world, that this great good news of the Lord Jesus died and raised from death for our forgiveness, for our justification, that this message is for all the earth, for all people, and you, you call us actually to be a part of that mission together as well. Father, we long for you to continue to fill our hearts with all joy and peace in believing, that we might trust you with our lives, that we might obey you uh, in response and thankfulness in gratitude for all that you've done for us in, in Jesus. We ask that our lives might so overflow with that that more and more people will actually hear the call to praise the Lord Jesus themselves, to become living sacrifices, to know his grace in their own hearts and lives. Father, help us to do this uh, each in our own places, in our workplaces, in our households, with our family and friends. Help us as a church to do that here in Asheville and throughout the inner west because, Lord, we long to see the name of the Lord Jesus lifted high, the one who's done so much for us, who's been so kind to us, this wonderful saviour. Father, fill our hearts with love for him that we might spill out in praise to him and invite others to join us in the same. And this we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit, for your honour and glory. Amen.